in pursuit of gold. Anunnaki documentary. They landed with a splash in one of Earth's oceans and built Eridu, home in the far away. A full-fledged Mission Earth eventually emerged from the virtual community, complete with a mission control center, a spaceport, mining operations, and even a way station on Mars. The astronauts used genetic engineering to create primitive workers, Homo sapiens, since they were short on human resources. A new beginning was necessary after the cataclysmic deluge engulfed the planet. The astronauts took on the role of gods, giving humanity civilization and the ability to worship. Then, roughly 4,000 years ago, a nuclear catastrophe undid everything that had been accomplished. This was caused by visitors to Earth who were engaged in conflicts and wars. Ryan Moorhen drew information from the now famous Moorhen Collection Private Museum in Liechtenstein. It was once curated by his grandfather George Moorhen for the Rothschild's curated artifacts comprising of the Bible, clay tablets, ancient mythologies, and archaeological finds about what had happened on Earth particularly the events that had occurred since the beginning of human history. But what had occurred on the astronauts' home planet Nibiru before the events on Earth? What had led to space travel, the demand for gold, and the creation of man? What feelings, conflicts, convictions, and morals, or lack thereof, led the main characters in the heavenly and space sagas? What were the interactions between Nibiru and Earth that were tense? What conflicts erupted between the young and old, between those born on Earth and those who had travelled from Nibiru? And to what extent was what transpired predetermined by destiny? A destiny whose account of the past contains the secret to the future. Would it not be fortunate if one of the main characters an eyewitness who could tell the difference between fate and destiny, recorded for posterity the how, where, when, and why of it all, possibly the first and last things. But some accomplished just that, and foremost among them was the commander of the first crew of Nephilim astronauts. The biblical stories of creation, Adam and Eve, the Garden of Eden, the Deluge, and the Tower of Babel, were based on writings made millennia earlier in Mesopotamia, particularly by the Anunnaki Sumerians, according to scholars and theologians. And they, in turn, made it evident that they had read the writings of the Anunnaki, those who from heaven to earth came. The ancient gods from which they had learned about historical events, many of which took place before civilization had even emerged. Many such early texts have been discovered due to archaeological discoveries made over the past 150 years in the ruins of ancient civilizations, particularly in the Near East. The discoveries have also revealed the extent of missing texts, or so-called lost books, which are either mentioned in the discovered texts, or inferred from such texts, or known to have existed because they were catalogued in royal or temple libraries. The Epic of Gilgamesh described the debate between the gods that resulted in the decision to let mankind perish in the deluge, and the text Atrahasis describes the revolt of the Anunnaki who had labored in the gold mines that resulted in the creation of primitive workers, earthlings, 
both contain portions of what is sometimes referred to as the secrets of the gods. The leaders of the astronauts occasionally wrote compositions themselves. Sometimes they dictated the text to a selected scribe, as in the Error Epoch, where one of the two gods who had brought about the nuclear catastrophe attempted to blame his rival. Other times, the god served as his scribe, as in the case of the Book of the Secrets of Thoth, the Egyptian god of knowledge, which the god had hidden in an underground chamber. The Bible claims that before giving the commandments to his chosen people, the Lord God Yahweh wrote them on two stone tablets he delivered to Moses on Mount Sinai. He recorded the words the Lord spoke to him while he was on the mount for forty days and forty nights. Moses had the new set of tablets written on them when he flung down and smashed the original set after the golden calf event. The Book of the Secrets of Thoth would not have been known if it weren't for a story about it preserved on papyrus from the reign of the Egyptian monarch Khufu, Cheops. We would never have known about the divine tablets and their contents. Everything would have been included in the mysterious body of lost writings, whose very existence would have never been discovered if it weren't for the biblical narratives in Exodus and Deuteronomy. At least two occasions suggested that the biblical narrator was aware of prior works. The fact that, in some instances, we are aware that some messages exist but are unaware of their contents is no less terrible. The Bible explicitly references the Book of Dasher, also known as the Book of Righteousness, and the Book of the Wars of Yahweh. This is the Book of the Generations of Adam, says the first line of Genesis chapter 5. Toliduth, typically translated as generations, means historic or genealogical record. The second time is in Genesis 6.1, where the phrase, These are the Toledoth of Noah, is used to introduce the story of Noah and the deluge. In addition, the book of Enoch, one of the so-called apocryphal books that were not included in the canonized Bible, contains passages that scholars believe to be fragments from a much earlier book of Noah. In fact, partial versions of a book that became known as the Book of Adam and Eve have survived over the millennia in Armenian, Slavonic, Syriac, and Ethiopic languages. The famed Library of Alexandria in Egypt is a frequently cited illustration of the magnitude of lost books. In conflicts from 48 BC to the Arab conquest of AD 642, this beautiful library, where intellectuals met to examine the body of knowledge, was destroyed. After Alexander's demise in 323 BC, General Ptolemy built a library with more than 500,000 volumes of literature engraved on diverse materials, clay, stone, papyrus, and parchment. The first five volumes of the Hebrew Bible translated into Greek are all that is left of its richness. In addition, several of the library's resident scholars' papers still contain fragments. Only via this do we know that in 270 BC, the Greeks gave the Egyptian priest Manetho a commission to chronicle Egypt's history and prehistory. Then it was the demigods, and ultimately, around 3100 BC, the Pharaonic dynasty started.
He said that the divine rains lasted for thousands of years after the flood, during which time there were wars and battles between the gods, and that they had started ten thousand years before the flood. Similar attempts were made to give the Greek savants a record of past events in Alexander's Asian territories, where their rule was transferred to General Seleucid and his successors. The history of gods and men was chronicled in three volumes by Berosus, a priest of the Babylonian god Marduk, who had access to clay tablet libraries, the most important of which was the Temple Library of Haran, now in southeast Turkey. This history began 432,000 years before the deluge, when the gods descended to earth from the heavens. Berosus stated that the first ruler came ashore from the sea disguised as a fish, listing the names and rain lengths of the first ten leaders. He was the one who endowed humanity with civilization, and his name was Carnis when translated into Greek. Both priests thus gave tales of gods of heaven who had come to earth, of a time when only gods ruled on earth, and of the devastating deluge, alluding to each other in numerous aspects. Berosa specifically reported the existence of writings from before the Great Flood, stone tablets that were hidden for safekeeping in an ancient city called Sipar, one of the original cities founded by the ancient gods, in the fragmentary bits and pieces retained in other contemporary writings from the three volumes. Sipar, like other pre-diluvial towns of the gods, was overrun and destroyed by the deluge, 668-633 BC. A library containing the remnants of some 25,000 inscribed clay tablets was unearthed in the palace's ruins when archaeologists discovered Nineveh in the middle of the 19th century. This ancient Assyrian metropolis had previously only been known from the Old Testament. A mention of the pre-diluvial texts appeared in the chronicles of the Assyrian monarch Ashurbanipal. Ashurbanipal, who was a devoted collector of olden texts, boasted in his annals, The god of scribes has bestowed on me the gift of the knowledge of his art. I have been initiated into the secrets of writing. I can even read the intricate tablets in Anunnaki Sumerian. I understand the enigmatic words in the stone carvings from the days before the flood. The Anunnaki Sumerian civilization, which later gave way to the Indus Valley civilization in the Indian subcontinent, is known to have flourished in Iraq almost a millennium before the beginning of the Pharaonic Age in Egypt. It is now known that the Anunnaki Sumerians were the first to record the histories and legends of deities and humans. From them, all other peoples, including the Hebrews, got the stories of creation, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the Deluge, the Tower of Babel, and the wars and loves of the gods, which are depicted in the writings and memories of the Greeks, Hittites, Canaanites, Persians, and Indo-Europeans. These ancient manuscripts reveal that far older texts, some discovered, many lost, were their sources. The amount of these ancient texts is astounding. Amid the ruins of the ancient Near East, tens of thousands of clay tablets have been found, not thousands. Numerous transactions involve or document daily life elements 
such as marriage contracts and workers' wages. Other canonized texts or secret literature were written down in the Anunnaki Sumerian language and then translated to Akkadian, the first Semitic language, and other ancient languages. These texts, primarily found in palace libraries, make up the royal annals. Still, other texts discovered in the ruins of temple libraries or scribal schools make up a group of canonized texts. Additionally, references to missing books can be found in those earliest writings dating back almost 6,000 years, texts inscribed on stone tablets. The same information concerning the ten pre-diluvial kings and their 432,000-year cumulative reign that Berossus had mentioned is etched on clay prisms which are among the incredible to say. Luckily does not communicate the miracle findings in the remains of ancient towns and their libraries. There is no question that the Anunnaki Sumerian compilers of the Anunnaki Sumerian king lists which are on display in the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford, England, had access to some previous common or canonical textual material. They strongly imply that the original recorder of the arrival, as well as of prior events and subsequent events, had to be one of those leaders, a key participant, or an eyewitness when combined with other equally early manuscripts found in varying levels of preservation. The leader who had splashed down with the first batch of astronauts had been a participant in all those activities, and an eyewitness to them. His nickname at the time was E.A., which stands for He Whose Home is Water. He was disappointed when his half-brother and opponent, Enlil, Lord of the Command, was awarded control of the Earth mission and his humiliation was only slightly lessened by being given the title Enki, Lord of Earth. A.R. Enki, a renowned scientist, discovered the hominids who lived there after being banished from the god cities and spaceport in the Edin, Eden, to oversee the gold mining in the Abzu, Southeast Africa. As a result, when the Anunnaki laboring in the gold mines rebelled and said no more, he was the one who realized that the necessary human resources could be obtained by accelerating evolution through genetic engineering. As a result, the Adam, literally he of the earth, an earthling, was created. The events mirrored in the biblical story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden described the second genetic modification by Enki that added the extra chromosomal genes required for sexual conception. Because Adam was a hybrid, he was unable to have children. It was he, Enki, who disobeyed his brother Enlil's intention to let mankind perish in the deluge. The events whose hero has been referred to as Noah in the Bible, and Ziusudra in the earlier original Anunnaki Sumerian text, when mankind, proliferating, did not turn out as it had been planned. Enki, Nibiru's ruler and the firstborn son of Anu, was well versed in the history of his planet and its inhabitants. He was a gifted scientist who left the most essential components of the sophisticated Anunnaki knowledge, particularly to his two sons Marduk and Ningish Zidar, who, as Egyptian gods, were known there as Ra and Thut, respectively. 
but he also played a crucial role in transferring some of this cutting-edge knowledge to mankind by imparting the secrets of the gods to a few chosen individuals. Such initiates recorded those divine lessons as part of humankind's inheritance in at least two cases, as they were told to do. One of the earliest lost writings is believed to have been written by a DARPA, who is thought to be the son of Enki by a human woman. Writings regarding time is one of his known works. The other, known as Enmeduranki, was most likely the forerunner of the biblical Enoch, who was carried up to heaven after giving his sons the Book of Divine Secrets, a version that may have survived in the extra-biblical Book of Enoch. Despite being Anu's firstborn, he was not meant to succeed his father as ruler of Nibiru. Enlil, Enki's half-brother, received that honor thanks to complicated succession procedures representing the complicated history of the Nibiruans. Enki and Enlil were sent to Earth to stop the acrimonious dispute, because Earth's gold may be used to make a barrier to protect Nibiru's vanishing atmosphere. Enki decided to reject Enlil's plan for mankind to perish in the deluge against this backdrop, which was made even more complicated by the presence of their half-sister Ninhursag, the chief medical officer of the Anunnaki on Earth. The fight persisted between the two half-brothers' kids and even their grandchildren. The fact that everyone involved, especially those who were born on Earth, had to deal with Nibiru's longer orbital period's reduction in longevity contributed to their personal suffering and sharpened their goals. Everything reached a head in the last century of the third millennium BC, when Ninurta, Enlil's firstborn son, and not Marduk, Enki's firstborn by his official bride, asserted that he should inherit the earth. The employment of nuclear weapons due to the brutal fight that included numerous conflicts unexpectedly destroyed the Anunnaki Sumerian civilization. The commencement of the priesthood, the lineages of the intermediaries between the gods and the people, the communicators of the divine words to the mortal earthlings, had been marked by the initiation of selected persons into the secrets of the gods. Oracle's interpretation of divine words coexisted with the practice of looking to the stars for signs, and prophecy started to come into play as mankind was drawn to join sides in religious disputes. Nabu, Marduk's firstborn son, strove to persuade mankind on behalf of his exiled father that the heavenly signals indicated the coming supremacy of Marduk, and the term to describe such speakers of the gods who proclaimed what was to come was Nabi. These advances made the realization that one must distinguish between fate and destiny more acute. Enki and Enlil started to reflect philosophically on what was truly fated and could not have been avoided, and what was fated as a result of good or bad choices and free will. Enki and Enlil sometimes reviewed and remembered the sequence of events and the apparent parallelism between what had happened on Nibiru and what had happened on Earth. The differences between Nam, a destiny like the planetary orbits whose course had been established and was immutable, and Anu, which were previously unquestioned, were now closely examined. Ta, which stood for fate, 
literally meant a destiny that could be bent, broken, or altered. The former could be predicted, whereas the latter could not, especially if everything was cyclical like planetary orbits. If what was will again be, if the first things will also be the last. The culmination of the nuclear apocalypse forced the Anunnaki leaders to examine their motives, and it heightened the need to explain why it happened in this way to the engulfing human masses. Is someone responsible for this? Was it predetermined or just a byproduct of Anunnaki's will? Was anyone accountable? On the eve of the catastrophe, Enki was the lone opponent of using the illegal weapon in the councils of the Anunnaki. Enki felt it was imperative to inform the suffering survivors of the significance of the turning point in the story of aliens who had good intentions, but ended up being destroyers. And who better than A.R. Enki, who arrived first and was an eyewitness, to tell the past so that the future could be predicted? Since a lengthy collection, covering at least twenty-two tablets in the Morhen collection, was found in the ancient library in Mosul, Enki documented his autobiography. Enki is quoted as saying by Nippur, There was a great deal of flooding when I got closer to earth. As I got closer to its lush meadows, at my direction heaps and mounds were built up. I constructed my home in a purity spot, giving it a suitable moniker. The lengthy passage tells how Enki gave his lieutenants tasks to complete, sending them on a trip to Earth. Enki's story is completed by several additional books. Some are partly in the Moorhen collection in Liechtenstein, and the other half in Switzerland, also in a private museum. They include a cosmogony and an epic of creation, both of which contain Enki's own writings, known to researchers as the Eridu Genesis and which relate various aspects of his participation in later developments. They go into great depth on how Adam was created. They include texts of Enki's personal life and problems, such as the tale of his attempts to have a son by his half-sister Ninhosan, his promiscuity with both goddesses and the daughters of man, and the unintended consequences thereof. They describe how other Anunnaki, male and female, came to Enki in his city Eridu to obtain the May, a data disk from him that encoded all aspects of civilization. The division of Earth's kingdoms between Enki and Enlil by Anu averted a flare-up of their feuds, as noted in the Atrahasis narrative. The discussions in the Council of the Gods about the fate of humanity and Enki's deception which is known as the story of Noah and the Ark, are almost verbatim in texts documenting the events before the deluge. Until one of its original Mesopotamian versions was discovered in the tablets of the Epic of Gilgamesh, this story was only known from the Bible. The main body of recorded memories of the events of gods and mortals can be found in Anunnaki Sumerian and Akkadian clay tablets, Babylonian and Assyrian temple libraries, Egyptian, Hittite, and Canaanite myths, and biblical tales. For the first time, Ryan Moorhen has brought together and exploited this scattered and dispersed data to reconstruct Enki's eyewitness account. 
the autobiographical memoirs and incisive forecasts of an extraterrestrial god. Even though Ryan Morhen's grandfather was an Assyriologist, who curated the collection of which it is named, and he has also studied Near Eastern history for almost thirty-three years, it took him seven years to gain access to the collection with special permission from the Rothschilds. It reminds me of Yahweh's instructions to the prophet Isaiah, 7th century BC, which are presented as a text delivered by Enki to a chosen scribe, a book of witnessing to be unsealed at a suitable time. Come now, write it as a book on a sealed tablet, carve it, let it be a testimony for all time, witnessing to the very end. Isaiah 38 Enki himself saw the future while he dealt with the past. That the Anunnaki, who possessed free will, were in control of their own fates, as well as the fate of humanity, gave way to the understanding that destiny ultimately determined how events would turn out, and as a result, as the Hebrew prophets had foretold, the first thing shall be the last. Thus the Enki-recorded timeline serves as the basis for prophecy, and the past becomes the future. Brilliant scribe born in Eridu city, who served the great god Enki. I was called by my master, the lord Enki, the great god, the merciful creator of people, who created them in the seventh year following the great calamity, on the seventeenth day of the second month. I was one of Eridu's surviving members, who fled to the dry steppe as the evil wind approached the city. I then set foot in the wilderness, searching for dead branches to use as firewood. I then turned to look above, and a whirlwind came from the south. It was silent, and had a reddish glow about it. Four straight feet extended out from its abdomen as it descended to the ground, and the brightness vanished. I immediately fell to the ground and bowed down, because I knew it was a divine vision. When I opened my eyes, I saw two divine emissaries standing close by. They, too, had human faces, and their clothes sparkled like burnished brass. They said, You are being called by the mighty deity Enki, as they addressed me by name. Do not be alarmed, you are blessed, and we are coming to transfer you to his retreat in the land of Mogon, on the island in the middle of the river of Mogon where the sluices are by lifting you into the air. The whirlwind rose as a fiery chariot, and left as they finished speaking. They each grasped one of my hands while holding on to me by the other. They immediately transported me between the earth and the heavens like an eagle as they lifted me. The countryside, rivers, plains, and mountains were all visible to me. They then dropped me off on the island near the entrance to the home of the giant god and as soon as they released their grip, I was overcome with a brilliance I had never seen before, collapsing to the ground as though bereft of the spirit of life. I felt as though I had been roused from the deepest sleep by the sound of my name being called. I added, Here I am. I was enclosed. Despite the darkness, an aura was present. Then the darkest of voices called my name once more. Even though I could hear it, I could not identify who was speaking, or where the voice was coming from. The voice then addressed me, saying, Endubsar, descendant of Adapa, 
I have appointed you to be my scribe, that you record my words on the tablets. A light suddenly materialized in one area of the enclosure. A scribe's table, a scribe's stool, and beautifully formed stones were on the table, and the area was set up like a scribal workspace. However, I didn't see any clay tablets or pots with wet clay. Only one stylus was on the table, and it shone in the light like no other reed stylus ever had. Endupsa, son of Eridu City, my faithful servant, the voice said once more, I am your lord Enki, and I have asked you to record my words, because I am deeply saddened by what the great calamity has brought upon humanity. To prove to gods and mortals that my hands are pure, I want to document the events precisely as they happen. Such a catastrophe had not befallen the earth, the gods, and the inhabitants since the great deluge. But the great deluge, not the great calamity, would occur. This one would have been avoided seven years ago. It could have been avoided. Although I, Enki, did everything I could to stop it, I was unsuccessful. Furthermore, was it fate or destiny? It will be judged, since there will be a day of judgment at the end of time. It will be the day of the re-entering celestial god when the earth will tremble, the rivers will shift their courses, and there will be darkness at noon and a fire in the heavens at night. On that day it will be revealed who will survive and who will perish, who will be rewarded and who will be punished gods and humans alike. For what will come to pass by what had passed shall be determined, and what was destined shall in a cycle be repeated. And what was destined and only by the hearts will occur for good or ill shall be for judgment come. The great lord then resumed speaking, stating, I will reveal the correct narrative of the beginnings and of the prior times and of the olden times for in the past the future lies hidden. The voice suddenly went silent. I will talk for forty days and forty nights, and you will write during that time. Forty will be the total of those days and nights, since forty is my sacred number among the gods. You must fast for forty days and forty nights, and consume bread and water once, which will be enough to keep you alive for the duration of your assignment. A glowing appeared in another area of the enclosure as the voice paused. I then noticed a table with a plate and a cup on it. I got up and saw the bread and the cup of water on the plate. Endupsa, eat the bread and drink the water, and you will be maintained for forty days and forty nights, the great Lord Enki's voice echoed. And I followed the instructions. The light at the scribal table became more intense as the voice told me to sit there. I couldn't see any doors or openings where I was, yet the glowing was as bright as the midday sun. The voice asked, What do Endupsa the scribe? I then stated, I see stone tablets, and their color is blue as pure as the sky. As I looked at the blazing beam on the table, the stones and the stylus, then I notice a stylus I had never seen before, with a reed-like stem and an eagle-talon-like tip. Stay true to what I've said and spoken, the voice said. These are the tablets on which you should write my words. 
They were cut to my specifications from the best lapis lazuli, each having two smooth faces. Each stone tablet must have its front face inscribed, and its back must have two writing columns. The stylus you can see was also created by a god. It has a divine crystal tip and an electrum handle. It will snugly fit in your hand, and engraving with it will be as simple as marking wet clay. There was a pause, and I touched one stone. The surface felt soft and smooth, like smooth skin. I then took the holy stylus, which was as light as a feather. The great deity Enki then spoke, and I recorded his words verbatim in my writing. His voice was booming, occasionally approaching a whisper. His voice conveyed grief or agony as much as pride or joy. I took another tablet to continue after one had been written on all of its faces. The giant god paused when the ultimate words were pronounced, and I heard a loud sigh, and he said, And Upsar, my servant, you have faithfully recorded my words for forty days and forty nights. This is where your job is done. Now take hold of a second tablet and write your attestation. As a witness, seal the tablet at the end. Take the tablet and place it with the other tablets in the divine chest. The chosen ones will arrive at a predetermined time and discover the chest and the tablets. They will then learn everything I have dictated to you and an accurate account of the beginnings, the prior times, the olden times, and the ages and it will be both a witness to the past and a foreteller of the future. For the first thing is also the last, and the future lives in the past. After a brief pause, I placed the tablets inside the chest correctly. The chest outside was covered in gold inlay and constructed from acacia wood. My lord then spoke, telling me to fasten the chest's latch and close the cover, and I followed the instructions. After another silence, my lord Enki said, And as for you, Endubsar, you have spoken with a great deity, and even though you haven't seen me, you have been in my presence. You are, therefore, my chosen spokesperson for the people you will become, and I bless you. You must exhort them to do what is right, since a good and long life is found in doing so and it would be best if you consoled them, because in seventy years the towns will be restored and the crops will re-sprout. Warfare will coexist with times of calm. Kingdoms will rise and fall, and new nations will grow powerful. The ancient gods will retire, and the future will be decided by new gods. However, destiny will win out in the end, and my remarks about the past foretell that future. And Upsar, you must inform the populace of all of it. After that, there was stillness, and as I and Upsar knelt in prayer, I questioned how I would know what to say. The words to speak will come to you in dreams and visions, the Lord Enki said. The signs will be in the heavens. There will be more prophets who have been chosen after you, and in the end, there will be no need for prophets, because there will be a new earth and a new heaven. After the auras disappeared and there was silence, the ghost left me, and I was on the plains outside of Eridu when I came to my senses.
Summary of the Moorhen Collection Acadian Tablet, MC2894A. Bewailing the Emptiness of Sumer. What happened when the radioactive cloud expanded and the gods left their cities? The discussions held at the gods' council. The terrible choice to use weapons of terror. The beginnings of the gods and Nibiru's incredible armaments, north-south wars, union and dynastic rule on Nibiru, the location of Nibiru in the solar system. Climate changes brought on by a declining atmosphere. The attempt to get gold to protect the atmosphere fails. Alalu, a usurper, ignites volcanic gases with nuclear bombs. A dynastic sasa named Anu overthrows Alalu. Alalu escapes Nibiru by stealing a spacecraft. Morhen Collection Akkadian Tablet MC2894A The firstborn son of Anu, Lord Enki, who rules over Nibiru, spoke these words. I cry laments with a heavy heart, and bitterly laments flood my heart. How devastated is the country! How has the evil wind taken its people? How have the stables and sheepfolds been emptied? How severely has the evil wind affected the cities, causing their inhabitants to pile up like dead bodies? How much has the evil wind affected the fields, leaving their greenery withered? How much are the rivers in love? The once pure beautiful waters have been poisoned, and no one swims any more. Sumer is empty of its black-headed inhabitants. All life has vanished. It is also empty of its cattle and lambs. The hum of milk churning has gone silent. Only the wind howls in its gorgeous cities. The only odor is death. The temples whose gods raised their heads to heaven have been forgotten. The scepter and tiara are no longer present. No lordship or kingship command exists. The two big rivers previously lush and life-giving banks now only support weeds. Highways and roads are untraveled. Thriving Sumer is like an abandoned wasteland. How devastated is the country, the abode of men and gods? Unknown to man, a catastrophe struck the region. A catastrophe that humankind had never experienced before and was unstoppable. A disrupting hand of horror was laid upon all the regions from west to east. The gods were as helpless as men in their cities. An evil wind inflicted a great calamity in its path. A storm formed in a remote plain. A wind that brings death and travels from west to east has been fated to follow that path. A storm is as devastating as a deluge, destroying not with water but with wind, overwhelming not with tidal waves but with poisoned air. It was created by fate rather than destiny. The great gods had brought about the great calamity in their meeting. It was approved by Enlil and Ninhursan. I was the only one pleading for a halt. I fought day and night to accept the sky's will, but in vain. The warrior son of Enlil, Ninurta, and my son, Nergal, poisoned weapons and let them loose across the vast plain. We were unaware that an evil wind would follow the brilliance. Now they sob in pain. Who could predict that the storm that brings death, born in the west, would make its way to the east? 
now the gods lament. The gods in their sacred cities watched in disbelief as the evil wind travelled towards Sumer. The gods left their temples to the wind, and one by one left their city. I was powerless to stop the poisonous cloud as it moved toward my city, Eridu. Get away to the vast steppe, I gave orders to the people. I left the city with Ninki, my wife. Enlil was powerless to halt it at his city of Nippur, where the bond heaven-earth was created. The evil wind was blowing against Nippur. Enlil hastily launched his celestial boat with his wife. Nana begged his father Enlil for help at Ur, the capital city of Sumer. Nana was the hand of fate, and disregarded his father's pleas in the temple's location, which rises to heaven in seven steps. Turn the evil wind away, O great god who gave birth to me, and gave the kingship to Ur. In a plea, Nana. Continue to honor the great deity who controls fortunes by sparing Ur and her inhabitants. Nana filed a protest. Noble son, your excellent city lordship was granted. Eternal reign was not, replied Enlil in response to his son Nana. Ningal, grab your wife and run from the city. Even I who set the fates am powerless to change destiny, my brother Enlil said. But unfortunately, it was not destiny. A tragedy that hasn't been this serious since the flood, gods and humans were hit. Sadly, it wasn't fate. The great deluge and the great calamity of the death-dealing storm were both predestined to occur. It was brought about by the breaking of a vow, by a council vote, and the deployment of weapons of terror. The poisoned weapons were released by choice rather than fate, and the lot was decided upon by thought. My firstborn caused the immediate destruction of my two sons. Revenge was in their hearts for Marduk. Marduk is not entitled to ascendancy. I will confront him with weapons, Ninurta said. Firstborn Enlil yelled. He gathered an army of people, using Babylai to declare the center of the earth. So yelled Nergal, Marduk's brother. In the big gods' meeting, poisonous phrases were said. I spoke up against haste day and night. Peace, I offered advice. Why does opposition persist when the populace has erected his divine image a second time? I begged the question. The age of Marduk in the sky has yet to come. Has each instrument been examined? I repeated my question. Ningish Zida, my own son, and other heavenly indications are mentioned. I knew that his heart could not forgive Marduk for what he had done to him. Enlil on Earthborn encountered Nana, who was also unyielding. Marduk established his own home during my time in the northern city. Then he said, The youngest son of Enlil, Ishgur, was sentenced to punishment and told to whore after the people he had created in his domains. Utu, son of Nana, aimed his anger at Marduk's son, Nabu, and attempted to take control of the location of the celestial chariots. The identical twin of Utu, Inanna, was enraged and continued to demand that Marduk be punished for killing her beloved Dumuzi. Mother of the gods and humans, Ninhursag, looked elsewhere. Why is Marduk not present? All she said was, 
Gibil, my own son, said somberly, Marduk has disregarded all pleadings and asserts his sovereignty based on signs from heaven. The only way to stop Marduk is with guns, Enlil's firstborn Ninurta yelled. It was essential to Utu to keep Marduk's hands off the place of the celestial chariots so it wouldn't crumble. Then he said, Let the old weapons of terror for eradication be utilized, angrily commanded Nergal, lord of the lower domain. I looked at my own son in astonishment. Using fear weapons in brother-against-brother battles has been forbidden. There was silence rather than agreement. Enlil spoke quietly, saying, Punishment must be meted out. The evildoers shall be as birds without wings. Marduk and Nabu, us of legacy, are depriving. Let them of the place of the celestial chariots be deprived. Let the area be burned to a crisp. The one who scorches let me be, yelled Ninurta. Excitedly, Nergal jumped up and yelled, Let the towns of the evildoers likewise be demolished. Let me obliterate the cities of wickedness. Let the Annihilator be my name after that. I firmly asserted that since earthlings were our creation, neither the pious nor the sinful should perish. My co-creator Ninhorsag approved, saying, The issue is between the gods alone to settle. The people must not be hurt. Anu was paying close attention to the conversations and the celestial home. Anu, who controls destiny, spoke from his heavenly home. Let the weapons of terror be used this once. Let the place of the rocket ships be destroyed. Let the people be spared. Let Nergal be the annihilator, and Ninurta the scorcher be. Enlil concurred as well, and the choice was made public. I'll let them in on a god's secret and the location of the terror weapons. Enlil called his two sons, mine and the other his, to his inner chamber. Nergal passed me without looking at me. Alas, brother has turned against brother, I shouted aloud without using words. Do the prior times have to happen again? Enlil disclosed a myth from ancient times, trusting the weapons of terror to their hands. They are set loose, clad in dread and splendor, turning everything in their path into dust. They had vowed to fight each other as brothers on earth, regardless of the place. The oath was now rendered meaningless, like a broken jar. The two sons came from Enlil's chamber with hastened steps, jumping with joy as the weapons left. None of his disasters had a foreshadowing, so the other gods turned around and went back to their cities. This is a description of earlier times and terrorist weapons. The beginning came before the prior times, and the olden times followed the prior times. The gods visited earth in ancient times and made the first humans there. No gods existed in the prior times, and humans had not yet been created. The gods' home during the prior times was on their own planet Nibiru. Nibiru is a giant planet with a reddish brilliance that orbits the sun in an extended orbit. Nibiru spends some time in the cold. The sun strongly heats it for a portion of its orbit. Dense atmosphere Nibiru is continuously nourished by volcanic outbursts. This atmosphere supports many lives. Without it, 
there would be just perishing. The core heat of Nibiru surrounds the globe throughout the cold season like an ever-renewing warm cloak. It protects Nibiru from the sun's harsh rays in the hot season. While it is raining, it holds and releases water to create lakes and streams. All kinds of life have sprung out in the waterways and on the land because of the lush vegetation that blankets our atmosphere, feeding and protecting it. After a long time, our species grew a seed that could keep going forever. As the number of us grew, our ancestors moved to many parts of Nibiru. Some worked for land, and some with four legs took care of the animals. Some of them lived in the mountains, and some of them lived in the valleys. Rivalries and encroachments led to fights, and sticks were used as weapons. Clans formed tribes, and two big nations stood face to face. The country of the north took up arms against the country of the south. What was held by hand was turned into missiles that shot forward. Thunderous and bright weapons made things even scarier. The entire world was at war for a long time, and brothers fought against brothers. Both north and south were affected by death and destruction. For a long time the land was empty, and there wasn't much life. Then a truce was called, and efforts to make peace were made. The messengers told each other, Let the nations come together. Let there be one throne on Nibiru, and one king who rules over everyone. Let a leader from the north or south be chosen by chance, and let there be only one king. If he is from the north, the south should choose a woman to be his wife and rule with him. If a south man is chosen by lot, he should marry a north woman. Let them be husband and wife and become one flesh. Let their firstborn son take over. Let this create a unified dynasty and bring peace to Nibiru for good. Peace began amid the wreckage. North and south were brought together by marriage. The royal throne became one body, and a line of kings went on without a break. After peace, the first king was an influential leader from the north. He was chosen by drawing lots. He was honest and fair, and his decisions were respected. He built a beautiful city to live in. It was called Akkad, which means unity. For his rule, he was given the title Celestial One, which meant he was a king. He brought law and order back to the land by force, and made the rules and laws. He put governors in charge of each land. Their primary jobs were to restore and reclaim the land. In the royal records, it was written that he united the lands and brought peace back to Nibiru. He built a new city, fixed the canals, and fed the people, so there was plenty of food on the land. He chose a young woman from the south to be his wife. She was known for both love and war. Antu was her royal title, and her given name cleverly meant the leader who is Anu's spouse. She had three boys and no girls with Anu. She gave her first son the name Anki, which means a solid foundation in the language of Anu. He sat on the throne by himself, and the choice of a wife was put off twice. The palace was filled with concubines during his rule, but he never had a son.
So the dynasty began with Anki's death, since he had no children. Even though he wasn't the firstborn, the middle son was named the legal heir. One of three brothers was called Lutunergal by his mother since he was a child. His name meant the one in the middle. From the royal records, Anki is called. In divine kingship, the name of the one who is Anu's son is shown through the generations. He was the third person to rule Nibiru. His father, An, was the second. He married the daughter of Enki's half-brother, Nin, called Lil, the Lady of Lil. Anib and Ninib had a son. He was the fourth king to take over the throne, based on the number of kings. Anshar Gal wanted to be known by his royal name, which meant Anu's prince, who is the greatest of princes. His wife, Kishargal, was his half-sister. They both had the same name. His primary goal was to learn and understand. He worked hard to learn how the heavens work. He looked into Nibiru's big circle, whose length had to be set at a shah. One year on Nibiru was used to track how long each king or queen ruled. He split the shah into ten parts, and then announced two festivals. When the earth was closest to the sun, a festival of warmth was held. When Nibiru went to its far-away home, the festival of coolness was set up. The two were set up to replace all the old festivals of tribes and nations and bring people together. He set up laws for husbands and wives and sons and daughters by decree. He also made the customs of the first tribes the law for the entire land. During the wars, there were many more women than men. He made rules that said one male could have over one female. By law, only one wife can be the official spouse. This wife is called the first wife to be called. By law, the firstborn son took over for his father. By following these rules, people soon needed clarification. If the firstborn son wasn't from the first wife, then a son was born by the first wife, who became the legal heir by law? Who will be the next leader? The one with the most firstborn children? The one who was born by the first wife? The youngest son? The heir by law? Who will get the money? Who will do well? While Anshargal was king, Kishargal was named his first wife. She was the king's half-sister. During Anshargal's rule, the palace was once again filled with concubines. The king's sons and daughters were born to his concubines. The first child to be born was the son of a concubine. The child was called the firstborn. Then Kishargal gave birth to a son. By law he was the heir, but he was not the firstborn. In the palace, Kishargal got angry and yelled, Let the double seed not be forgotten if the rules say my son, who was born to a first wife, can't be king. Even though we have different moms, the king and I have the same father. I am the king's half-sister, and he is my half-brother. By that, my son, our father, Anib's double seed, has it. Let the law of the seed and the law of marriage rule from now on. From now on, a son by a half-sister should take the throne before all other sons. 
and Shargar liked the law of the seed when he thought about it. It would keep his wife and concubine's marriage and divorce from getting mixed up. In their meeting, the king's advisers agreed on the law of the seed for succession. The scribes wrote the decree because the king told them to. So, based on the law of the seed, the name of the next king was made public. He was given the name Anshar, which means king. He was fifth in line for the throne. This is the story of Anshar's rule and the kings who came after him. When the law was changed, there was fighting among the other princes. There were words, but there was no rebellion. As his half-sister and wife, Anshar chose. He made her his first wife and gave her the name Kishar. So, because of this law, the dynasty kept going. During Anshar's rule, the crops in the fields got smaller, with fewer fruits and grains. From one circuit to the next, their heat got more muscular as they got closer to the sun, while the coolness in the faraway home got more biting. In Arkad, the city of the throne, the king and many wise people got together. People with a lot of knowledge and intelligence were told to ask questions. They looked at the land and soil and tried out the lakes and streams. It's happened before, and some people said Nibiru had grown in the past when it was colder or warmer. It has a fate since it is part of the circuit of Nibiru. Others who knew the edge and watched the circuit did not think about Nibiru's destiny being to blame. They found that there had been a breaching in the atmosphere. Spitting up were volcanoes, the atmosphere, forebears, and people who burped less. The air on Nibiru has become less dense, and the protective shield has shrunk. Pestilences spread during the rule of Anshar and Kishar, and no amount of work could stop them. The throne was then taken over by their son, Enshar, who was the sixth member of that family. Lord of the Shah was what the name meant. He was born with a lot of knowledge and learned a lot throughout his life. He looked for ways to fix the problems, like Nibiru's path through the heavens, and he did a lot of research. It wrapped around five beautiful planets in its loop of the sun's family. He had their atmospheres looked at, seeing if there were any ways to heal them. He gave each one a name. He honored their ancestors and thought of them as heavenly couples. The first two planets he saw were An and Antu, like twins. Anshar and Kishar, the biggest ones, were outside Nibiru's circle. Gaga, among others, traveled as a messenger, sometimes meeting Nibiru first. As the sun went around, five heavenly beings greeted Nibiru. Beyond the hammered bracelet, the sun made a circle like a boundary. The hammered bracelet was like a guardian of heaven's forbidding area, protecting it from chaos. The bracelet kept the four other children of the sun from getting hurt. Enshar set out to study how the five greeters made people feel. In Nibiru's loop, five things were carefully looked at. What atmospheres they had were closely looked at by watching them and using celestial chariots. The findings were surprising and the discoveries were hard to understand. Nibiru's atmosphere breaching got worse from circuit to circuit. In the councils of the wise, 
people talked about cures and ways to bandage wounds with great interest. A new shield was tried to cover the planet, but it all fell back to the ground. The volcanoes that spewed ash were looked at in councils of the wise.